0: How are you guys doing? Good. Well, thanks for having me. It is a pleasure. Casey, if I step on your pedal here, you know how to correct that stuff, right? All right, good. Okay. I'm not going to start by praying because I was praying right there. Okay. Um, how many of you have been in a weed out course? Anybody? All right. I'm here to learn. What course was your weed out course? All right, I'm going to call on hands here. (laughs) I'm here to learn. Yeah. Okay. Okay, that sounds complicated. Uh, Business calculus data. I wouldn't sign up for that. Neuroscience. Neuroscience. What about organic chemistry? All right, that's the one I know of. I can't see hands anymore. It's like bright. But P.E., A lot of, like, okay, so a lot of intro courses are often kind of surprise weed-out courses, right? Accounting. Accounting. I got two C's in college, and accounting was one of them. And the other one, because I actually tried, and I couldn't get a a good, a decent grade. The other one was nutrition, because I skipped so many times. Um, (laughs) And then um, I remember sociology was surprisingly difficult, because the teacher had that, like, oh, people think it's a blow-off course, and then... Decides to make it hard. Another one for me was geology, thinking, oh, that'll be an easy science. And, I mean, I remember I got my first test back. It was a D plus, and I dropped it immediately, thinking, what was I thinking? I'm not even interested in rocks. Um, you know, I could have said I'm not even interested in maps, but that's, yeah, know. Um, geography. I took geology. Okay. Or there's weed out other experiences. For example, um, two-a-days any sport, like, you got two-a-days, you okay? Um, Any Navy SEALs in the room? Hell Week, I think, is one of those. There's these things that kind of separate, like, who's really here? Who deserves to be here? Who's willing to put up with anything to be here? And I remember the freshman football. That was the last time I played football, freshman year of college. I'm kidding, freshman year of high school. And... We had this weed out practice that we had to do uh, bear crawls, then every 20 yards, push-ups, then bear crawls, push-ups up and down the field. People's hands are bleeding, people are crying and having, you know, just, it was one of those things that the next practice was like a third of the team was gone. And that was the weed out experience. Now, all of these little weed out stories, my question is, is there a weed out course in the Christian faith? I would say yes. Otherwise, there'd be no point to my illustration. <laughs> I'd say yes. It's called Suffering 101, right? We often sign up and saying, Jesus, I'm gonna follow you. You know, Thank you for saving me. Thank you for what you've done for me. But if I walk with you, we're gonna enter into this deal and life will get better in some way. You've got a blessing for me and it comes from following you and things will turn out in a certain way that I hope. And then... What happens is, life, life happens. Life gets disappointing, something happens you didn't plan on, and I, I think of uh, Matthew 13, and we're gonna be in First Peter, but before, as I was spending our time in First Peter, this kept on coming to my mind. When Jesus talked about the parable of the sower, he's the is spreading seed everywhere, and the seed lands on different, styles of the, uh, forms of the grounds, and one's a, a, a rocky path, and the birds come and eat up the seed, and then there's a, a seed that falls on a bad soil, a rocky soil, and it plant springs up really quickly, and then it quickly withers away when the sun comes up. Jesus interprets this later, and he says this, as for the seed sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Joy, what's that joy for? Why, why are they joyful? Yet, he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Tribulation, persecution, it's a weed out course. It's something that we all encounter, but it's a very dangerous place in our walk with God. And so I want to look at how do we handle suffering? Or a better question would say, how are we, how can we not be handled by suffering? How can we get through suffering without being completely handled by it? In 1 Peter chapter 4, we're going to look at the second half, verses 12 through 19. I want to look at, just get a biblical understanding. What does Peter teach us about suffering? And then what does God do with our suffering? And then what does he want us to do with our suffering? So that's the general Direction. Look at verse 12, read with me. I had to open up your Bible, it's gonna be all over the place, I guess. Verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the spirit of glory Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. I'm going to, by the way, if you're a detailed person, verse 20 doesn't exist. I just missed that in the proof. Verse 19 is the last verse. Okay. So, a little biblical survey, quick survey of what we learn about suffering. When I think of suffering and what the scriptures say, the first thing that comes to my mind is James 1, verses 2 and 3. And James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Like, we're supposed to be joyful about trials, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But when you look and survey what the Bible says about suffering, that's completely consistent. And Peter's, I think Peter's thesis in the book of First Peter is this. When suffering comes and it will come, rejoice because God is in it. When suffering comes and it will come, rejoice because God is in it. He wants us to know God's up to, up to something good in our suffering. You can count on it. But I, I, I noticed that, I start asking questions like, what kinds of suffering is this applied to? And I see three different types of suffering referred to in this passage. So here's three types. The first kind is suffering for Christ. He says it in verses 13 and 14. He says, when you share in Christ's sufferings, verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, I mean, that's, what's, what is suffering for Christ? Look, what does that look like? Persecution, certainly, like being harassed, being made fun of, being simply passed over or excluded because you're a Christian. Uh, when I, I came out of an atheist background, most of my friends, my friends were not believers. So when I became a Christian, I faced a, a small degree of that. I know I was gossiped about. It felt like persecution. I didn't enjoy it. Um, how about uh, desires and conflict? Is that suffering for Christ when you experience... You want to do something, but your faith following Christ tells you something else. But that's, is that not suffering for Christ? The temptation, the, the pain of saying no to a desire is suffering for Christ. there's a bunch forgiving someone, I think is suffering for Christ. Forgiving is really painful. When someone really hurts you, you can pay him back. You can pay him back by like, gossiping about him by you know vandalism. <laughs> um, you know hitting them you can you can give them the cold shoulder you can cut them out of your life you can harbor a grudge you can root for their pain there's a number of ways to pay them back you can listen in anytime someone's talking bad about them and go oh awesome you know if you see them fall those are all forms of paying them back but true forgiveness is absorbing the debt And letting that pain just hurt you, knowing you've been forgiven of more and rooting for for their good. That hurts. That's suffering for Christ. I'm trying to expand our picture. What does suffering for Christ look like? It's not just persecution. It comes in a lot of forms because the Christian life is not easy. I mean, you know, setting your alarm and having a quiet time is suffering for Christ, right, if you're not a mourning person. There's a lot of styles. Now, (laughs) Verse 16, he says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian. I mean, there's three different places he says suffering for Christ. And I think that's the main thing Peter has in mind. His audience are suffering as Christians. They're in an environment where they're being persecuted hard. But sometimes our suffering is not for Christ. Sometimes it's because we're stupid, right? We do something really stupid. So there's suffering for sin, That's the next kind, and that's what's talked about in verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. I think this is like a sampling, you know, an adulterer, I would include that, or there's other things that could be mentioned. But just consider what he says. I mean, why does he pick these things? I I was thinking about it. I think there's the biggies, like murder, all all the way down to comparatively small things like meddling, Okay, so maybe it's from the big things to the small things, but I think maybe his audience were tempted by these particular things. They were being persecuted. Maybe you want to kill in response. Maybe you want to steal as your stuff has been stolen from you. Evil doing, what's that? Oh, by the way, those things all bring natural consequences, right? You murder, you steal, you, you go to jail typically. So there's a natural consequence and you suffer, right? What's evil doing? That's pretty generic. It, it, it's actually it's breaking the law. That's the meaning here. So if you, if you get a ticket for reckless driving, don't call it a spiritual attack, right? You're being an idiot. We, we actually, he says in the end of verse 19, we should be known, known as Christians for doing good. So that's the polar opposite, evil doing. Okay, and then meddling. Anybody want to tell me why that's in there? For, for, first of all, what's meddling? Sticking your nose in where it doesn't belong. Why? It's interesting. By the way, I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to let you wrestle with that. <laughs> Proverbs 26 verse 17 says, "Whoever meddles in a quarrel not his own is like one who takes a passing dog by the ears." Have you tried that before? <laughs> just seeing a dog and just grabbing it by its ears and yanking. What's the consequence of doing that? You get bit or you get punched, right? <laughs> One or the other, you're gonna suffer. It, meddling. It, I think what it means, we're not supposed to be the spiritual police. I did a little more investigation on that word because I was bored. And um, it's, it's sticking your nose in where it doesn't belong and really trying to be like, like impose our values on a non-Christian world, in a sense, like when you you start judging and meddling in other people who, holding them to the standards that we have as a Christian, holding them to that and expecting that of them, and then kind of getting in their business, that's the more research I did, that's the more I saw, and that is really interesting, because maybe Peter's audience was tempted by that, maybe we are, but all I know is that there's this place where we are supposed to sort of mind in one sense, mind own business and follow God and live quiet, productive lives that glorify God. If you read 1 Thessalonians, there's a clear calling to do that. Rather than, if you look at the way people navigate on social media, you can't tell where the Christians by their tone. Often people are yelling in all caps with very rude statements Condemning statements and it's just getting out there, and you, you can't tell by the posture and the tone who is in Christ and who is not. There's a there's a tone of meddling and gossip and all this other stuff. It it just gets ugly. This is what gets confusing though. We're supposed to mind our own business on one level, and yet at the same time, there are forms of evil that we are called not to mind our own business on. You see oppression happening. And Peter's been saying, if you're oppressed, if you're, if you're unjustly treated, take it, like suffer for Christ. But then if you see somebody else suffering, we are morally obligated to get involved. If you see a child being, you know, taken advantage of or you know, abused or some situation, we're called to look after orphans and widows and to stand up for, you know, against injustice. So that's one of those things where you have, you have to have wisdom, but... Here are the things, suffering as a sinner, and Peter's point here is that when you suffer for sin, there's no extra credit for you in that. It brings upon its own consequence, and if you, so if you say, I got a couple more examples of this, don't say that your boss is persecuting you as a Christian if you have a really lousy work ethic. Right, or if you date people in a way that leaves emotional wreckage or you take advantage of women or whatever and you develop a reputation, you're not suffering as a Christian. There's just some of the ways we lie to ourselves about it. Suffering for sin is very different for suffering for Christ. That's two categories. There's a third, and I see it's all other suffering because there are forms of suffering that just seem random. Um, verse 19 Suffering according to God's will. I think that's a pretty broad category. Stuff that comes to my mind. Chronic pain. Sickness. Just setbacks. You know, things that happen. uh, Car wrecks. Financial problems. Uh, You can just go on and on. Even if your suffering is not explicitly for Christ, there's a good God at work in it. Romans 8. 28, 29, for example, Uh, and, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So God's working, sovereignly working all things for your good, including, especially including your suffering, who are called, he's working your good according to his purpose. What's his purpose? It's in the next verse. For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God is using everything, good and bad, for the purpose of conforming you you to the image of his son. So the question is, I would say this, this is true for all of those forms of suffering. Is it even true for suffering for your sin? Is God using your suffering for your stupidity or for your sin or for your disobedience? Is God using that for your good? If you're suffering, yes. If you're suffering for your sin, he's being good to you in it. Why? Why? It's his mercy. In Romans 1, it says in like verse 18 that God reveals himself to everybody. He shows himself and his invisible attributes are made known through creation and everybody knows it. I don't believe in atheists, I'll be perfectly honest. I think everybody deep down knows I'm gonna stand before God one day. But it says, but men in their wickedness suppress the truth by their wickedness. They reject God because they don't want a God who's telling them how to live or whatever reason, and they say no. And what God does in judgment is he says in verses 24, 26, and 28, God gave them over. He gave them over to their desires. He gave them over to, their, to, the, to, to the logic of their minds, in a sense. He gives them over. His judgment is to say, You want life apart from me? Okay, your will be done. And all of us in our sin are choosing life apart from God. Whatever we do, in any way we sin, we're choosing life apart from God. And his judgment is to let us get away with that. Let us be satisfied with our sin. Let us enjoy playing in the street. You know, I've got a five, a nine, a five, and a soon-to-be four-year-old. Not very, I'm not very relaxed when they're playing near the street, right? I generally tell Charlie, Charlie Ryan, brilliantly named. We both have a son named Charlie Ryan. Greatness. (laughs) I don't let Charlie run out by the street. We have a sidewalk rule. You can't pass the sidewalk. And, If I don't love Charlie, then I'll be fine with him playing in the street. If I don't care about Lincoln, my nine-year-old, I'll give him unfiltered access to the internet. Yeah, hey, have at it, son. By the way, if your parents let you do that growing up, I'm not saying they didn't love you. Probably just ignorant, you know, at the time. Um, But I hope I didn't introduce a bad thought in your mind. My parents don't love me. Okay, back to the point. God is disciplining us when there's suffering in our sin. He's saying, you know what, I love you too much to let you enjoy this without any consequence. I'm gonna introduce a, a pain into your life. That suffering could come in the form of being caught, being, uh, being trapped by it and realizing I can't get out of this. It could come in the form of not being able to have peace You know, not being able to, it says in Galatians 5, I forget the verse, maybe 16, he says, the spirit is in us and the flesh is in us. They're at war with each other, so you can't do what you want. I love that. It's so comforting to me because that's my internal world. I want to follow Christ. I can't follow Christ the way I want to. Oh, I'm tired. I want to break in my sin. I can't sin like I wanted to either. I can't find joy over here. I can't find unhindered freedom over here. There's a tension, and I think that's normative. There's a civil war going on. If there's no civil war going on, I'd be concerned. Hebrews 12 says, every father disciplines his, his child. If you're not being disciplined, you're an illegitimate son. So if you're able to find joy in your sin without any qualms, that's reason to be concerned. So God is good to us in all forms of suffering. But what is he doing? I'm gonna break this down a little bit. Verse 12, he says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Fiery trial. And he also says to test you. That, those words make me think of chapter one, verses six and seven. That's on the screen. It says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Okay, that's repeated. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, bless you, that perishes though it is tested by fire. Tested, fire, trials, it's all repeated, that it may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Fiery trial, the word is pyrosis, pyrosis, it's where we get the word purify. That idea is, it's it's the refiner's fire. It's a purifying fire. And uh, like silversmiths would use it. They would take ore, O-R-E, metal ore, and it's a mixture of silver and impurities, and they're all bound, they're linked together. They would introduce, and under normal conditions, those things are linked together. But when they put it in the fire, that fire gets so hot that the impurities can't stand up to that fire, it gets melted away and what's left is the pure, the pure gold or the pure silver. I heard a story about a man who asked a silversmith, um, how do you know you've had the, the ore in there long enough? And the silversmith responded by saying, I look, at my, I, I look at the silver, I pull it out, I look at the silver and if I see my reflection in the silver, I know it's ready. Isn't that what God does to us? He puts us in the fire, and the impurities start to burn away, and he's doing that. He intends to do that until he sees his reflection in us. And the more you go through suffering, if you do it God's way, the more you're going to look like Christ. And, And so, just a little more on this. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. For what purpose? To test you to test you, uh, to, to prove you, to show what you really are. Because I, like I said, ore contains impurities and impurities mixed together, the, the worthy and the unworthy. And the fire introduces an extreme condition that they can't coexist. And the reason is, is the fire, the impurities cannot stand up to the fire, but the pure can. And so what is God testing What is he wanting to purify and retain? And according to verse seven, it's our faith. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. God wants to use your suffering to purify your faith in him. And when you are suffering, there's a real dangerous point. You can go one way or the other. If you're mostly impurities, you're gonna be incinerated, (laughs) By that fire. If you look like Jesus Christ, you're not gonna be changed at all. You know, if you are Jesus Christ, you, you're not gonna be changed at all. If you look like Jesus Christ, you'll be changed some. So what God's purpose for suffering, I've got three points here. First, how does this work? Suffering shows you what you really trust in. First example. So unless you're Jesus, the, you're you're gonna, suffering's gonna reveal a divided heart. And I don't care how strong and strong you are in Christ, you are and I am a mixture of pure and impure motives. So, um, I got some examples. Do you believe God is good? Yeah. Until things start going bad. You're, th- that's a fire. Do I really believe God is good? I've had a counseling appointment recently, that's what I get to do is I get to counsel people most of the time. And I find this very often when someone's really in the furnace, and they're really, really they, they go to Job often. I'm like, what's up with that? Like, God, is God even good? He's like placing a bet with Satan and just saying, here, suffer, Job. And he starts to see, it's easy to start to see God as bad. He's cruel. It, the, the, the faith is being tested at that point, right? Do you believe God is good? Well, You'll know when you start, things start going bad. Do you, uh, is God your rock or is success your rock? You won't know until failure is breathing down your neck. Trust in productivity. You might not know that until you are taken out by sickness. Do you trust in your athletic ability and you break an ankle? Right. The fire creates a separation. Your functional trust is revealed. Do you believe you're supposed to be equally yoked? You know, 2 Corinthians 6.14 Christians are supposed to marry Christians. So Christians probably shouldn't date non Christians according to 2 Corinthians 6. You you believe that, right? How do you know until that really smart, attractive guy shows interest in you and he starts pursuing you? You won't know until that happens how deeply you really believe that. What's your mixture? You, You believe him. You trust him, but what are the other impurities that you, you're really trusting in? Suffering is going to reveal it. And let me say, when, when Ben asked me to speak, and I get a good head start, he told me a while back, speak on 1 Peter 4. I started studying it, started getting the idea, and then I started suffering. <laughs> and this is what happened for me. Uh, been married for oh, almost 15 years now. Brandy's awesome, my wife is great. Anything I say, by the way, is typical for any marriage here. Okay, so I don't—not throwing her under the bus, but she's horrible. Um, <laughs> I'm joking, totally joking. I I I go to work every day, and in ca- doing counseling, I play tennis. Meaning, I sit across from someone, I listen to them, and I and I'm listening, and I'm thinking, God, how do you, what are you leading me to? And you know, I'm concentrating. They they're done speaking. I, I listen to God, I listen to them, and I lobby back, go back and forth, and then I live right up the street. I go home to dodgeball playing tennis, and I go home with three kids and a small house and a lot of tension. Balls coming every direction, and I've got slow reflexes. I'm not good at it. And we go through seasons where I can just feel Brandy's resentment because I'm not really good (laughs) at, like, leading at home and taking initiative and disciplining the kids well. I kind of, like, I get a lot more respect here than I deserve. People think I'm Pretty great here, so I get that. I mean, like, people tell me, like, like, did you hear Ben's introduction? Okay, that's why I'm trying to be proud. There's a disproportionate, like, I I go and I hang out with adults, you know, who are sane. And then I go home to these crazy demonic drug addicts, you know. (laughs) I'm kidding. And then I also have kids. I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm kidding about all that. But I like... I don't respond well on that. And so it brings out the worst in me, but then you amplify it with this fact that there's a tension between brains. She's a strong leader. My wife, is; she does what's right all the time, it seems like. I don't know if she's ever intentionally sinned. Um, it seems like it. and I can feel her resentment, and I'm not sure why, because I'm trying here, and I begin to resent her for resenting me, and we get stuck. Boom, boom, and it's like anything forms an argument. And she sees how, like, you know, if they really knew you, you'd be fired, you know, and all that stuff. And, uh, and I've gone through it, I went through one of those seasons of suffering where it's kind of like, oh, I don't know if it's because I'm studying this passage or what. And nothing I could do to, could fix it. And it was miserable because I just wanted to fix it. I tell you, and I will tell you, that I trust in Christ for my righteousness. The truth is, I trust in my boss's approval, I trust in your laughter. Right, your approval or not in your heads. I trust in my wife's approval more than any of them. Take away her approval, and I'm like, oh, I'm this insecure, like guy who's not trusting in Christ for his righteousness. God used that season to reveal to me, yeah, you trust me for your righteousness. You say you're not in court anymore, but you are every day when you go home, and you put, you make your wife the judge. She's not the judge. The, So that's how suffering reveals to me what I'm really trusting in. Okay, next, what does God do? Second, suffering shows you the inadequacy or the invalid nature of what you trust in. So for me, the need for Brandy's approval is not a worthy trust. I gotta tell myself that. The need for Brandy's approval is not a worthy trust. All right, that can be a song. I needed to discover that because as I was experiencing, and you know what, by the way, she had good reasons, discovering through arguments. There were some very legitimate reasons for her to feel that way. But um, I was, I started feeling like there was a disapproval coming from me and it didn't kill me. What First Peter was teaching me by God's grace was I started to become f- thankful that God was not allowing me to fix it. He was allowing me to see that I'm trusting in her And you know what, her disapproval doesn't kill me. Her disapproval doesn't define me. And her disapproval, by the way, she wasn't disapproving me, it just felt like it. But it's an inadequate trust. It's an inadequate God. The refiner's fire, the fire destroys the impurities, but the gold or the silver can stand up to the fire. It's worthy. And and so all these other things, we as being mixtures of trusting different things, we deep down believe, God, give me blank and I'll be good. God, give me a relationship, I'll be okay. Okay. Give me some recognition at my work or a promotion or some security or direction and I'll be good. Those things will not cut it. God is using it. And you, you won't know, for example, if it's success. Give me success. You won't, the opposite of success is, the flip side of it is the fear of failure, right? If you trust in success, then you fear failure. The cure for trusting success is not Success. It's failing. It's failing in discovering this doesn't kill me. It's having your wife's disapproval for a season and discovering this doesn't define me. God brings suffering to show the inadequacy of the things that you're trusting in. And again, I'd ask you, what are your trusts? What are your non-negotiables? Is it a parent's approval? Romance? Whatever it is, God is saying these false gods are inadequate. They cannot sustain you in the fire. I mean, if it's success, something can happen to the economy. If it's romance, these, one of these two things will happen. Your heart will get broken or it will work out and it will not satisfy you. God is different. Faith in him, commitment to him can stand up to any test, any fire. In fact, it will strengthen in that. The fire is God's way of saying this. You don't love me enough and the things you really trust in ain't gonna cut it. Okay, last thing. Suffering teaches you to fully trust God. In all this talk, suffering does not automatically purify us. I know plenty of people who've suffered and become bitter, cynical, full of self-pity. It can ruin you. It can cause you to walk away from your faith. It's a weed out. Right, but if you are following God in it and drawing near to him, God will take you where you did not intend to go in order to produce in you something that you couldn't achieve on your own. He uses suffering to change you, and so here's some instruction. Like How do you trust in God? Well, here are three things I see from this. God's instruction. One, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when you're suffering. He says, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you you know, following Christ does not promise to steer you clear of trials. In fact, I'd say it's just the opposite. Some people sign up expecting it's going to make life better, and it's guaranteed. And the way you interpret it, being grieving over suffering is good. If you read the Psalms, There's a vocabulary for how to grieve in your suffering, but we grieve in a Godward direction. We go to him with it. You could could be hurting, you could be sad, you could be upset, but don't be surprised, because surprised is to say, I didn't sign up for this. This wasn't supposed to happen. Surprise leads to self-pity or to anger. It's interpreting it in a way that this, this isn't right. And that's not the case. God is actually being good to you in it. Don't be surprised because God is doing something good. And um, yeah, you have to remember that the refiner is working on you in your suffering, no matter what kind it is. Secondly, obey in the pain. And boy, this is hard. I mean, don't suffer as a meddler or a sinner or, you know, as an evildoer. I he says in verse 19, but commit to, can trust yourself to him and do what's right, do good. It's so hard for me. I, I, I was realizing in this most recent season of suffering how quickly I turn to my phone when I'm suffering. And it's the, it's the vague undertone of suffering that I'm talking about, where it's like I'm kind of lonely or I'm kind of like feeling discouraged or I'm feeling kind of inadequate, and I, I, I just go to my phone. And I'm old enough that I still go to Facebook. Um, I, and I'll just kind of waste time there or play a, a card game. I'm afraid of any other better games than that. Um, I just, I don't want to engage God. I just want to escape. It's not a big form of disobedience, but it is a form of sloth. in being indifferent to God. Just kind of avoiding him. I mean, it doesn't work in marriage, by the way, if you just, Oh, we should talk. I'm just gonna check out, right? Um, that, that is a form of disobedience. And I, there's so many different ways that we, we are called to obey and press in, but are you aware of how you avoid him or how you disobey or how you comfort yourself? I mean, like pornography or, or you know, drinking or whatever, these different things that are kind of like standard or typical, but they're forms of often avoiding pain. Uh, I've heard that men struggle with alcoholism in general twice as much as women. Women struggle with depression twice as much as men. It's not gospel truth. But you know what I actually think is there? They're all suffering, trying to deal with it. You know? And by the way, there's plenty of overlap in this, but we need to learn how to suffer and obey in it. And God will be doing something good. So this last part is the crucial part is commit yourself to him in it. By the way, Charles Spurgeon said an ounce of sin will hurt you more, far more than 10 million tons of suffering. An ounce of sin will hurt you 10 million times more. An ounce of sin will hurt you far more than 10 million tons of suffering. We need to be extremely careful to obey in the pain. And then by doing that, the only way we can do that is by committing yourself to God. Verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Um, we, We can only do this because he is trustworthy. We have a really good example here. Jesus Christ entrusted himself to God, right? In the worst case scenario, he, he said, as the worst things that we could possibly, if we wrote a story and tried to create the ultimate tragedy, we wouldn't get close to this. And in the midst of the worst situation, being forsaken by his father, who had eternal union with, outshines the best marriage you could imagine. He's being abandoned. He's being betrayed. He's being tortured. All these different things. And he says, uh, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. I entrust my spirit to you. He, Jesus did this, in, in a way that God has never and never will abandon any of his children except one of them. He, he abandoned his son so that we would never be abandoned in it. And we could look at like Romans 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how, we not, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He, he's given us the most expensive gift he could possibly give us to guarantee to us that he will be good to us and whatever difficulties we're going through. But we can only do that by faith. In October of 1982, um, I was nine and you weren't born. Um, <laughs> the Badgers, Wisconsin, University of Wisconsin Bad, Badgers played uh, Michigan State Spartans. And there were 60,000 fans packed into the stadium. The Spartans were killing the Badgers. They were just like, they were dominating. So it was fairly quiet considering how packed that place was. And what was weird, though, was that every once in a while, there would be this sudden applause. Like, there would be this burst of cheering. They Like, this, you know, the, the Wisconsin would kick a field goal and miss five seconds later. There'd be cheers. Like, why? Because people brought their radios, and 70 miles away, the Milwaukee Brewers were winning game three of the World Series. People were tuned in to a different frequency. They were not responding to what was immediately in front of them, but they were listening in to something that was better. Same for us. When we are suffering, what's immediately in front of us certainly can get all of our attention, but we're not home. It's not about this. And there's a good God who's up to something good. And he's not saying, oh, wait until the end and I'll bless you. No, in the suffering, he blesses us now, because it says, verse 13, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. There's a future glory that will far surpass what you're going through now, but he actually comforts us in our sufferings, but that can only be done as we're tuned in with the eyes of faith to him. Trusting in him, believing he's up to good, and allowing him to comfort us. And this is not a spectator sport. It's really a team sport, right? We're to be doing this side by side and I'd say also eye to eye with God but that right there requires us to not be surprised and whatever suffering you're going through, don't be surprised. There's a good God who's up to something, who's trustworthy. What does it look like to obey him in it? Let me pray. Father, thank you for camping out on a topic that we don't like to camp out on because we don't want to experience it. We don't want to experience it, suffering. I I pray that whether uh, whoever's hearing this, I pray that they're including their suffering, even if it's small on the Richter scale, even if it's something that is as a result of their own sin, or if it's just seems like it's you know, there's a cynical interpretation that, oh, this, just, this stuff just happens. I pray that we would tune our hearts to the frequency of your word, of the reality that you are in it, you are working through it. Suffering is promised to come and we are called to trust you because you are loving us in it and through it and will walk us through it and help us, Lord, to not only endure it but to actually to rejoice and to obey you. Teach us what that looks like even if we're slow to learn. I ask it in Jesus' name.